Good morning, church. Good morning. If you could take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, uh, the fourth chapter. You know, um, my wife and I, we kind of do our best to uh, raise our children. I fail all the time, every day, every week. Uh, And one of the things that I I try to do unsuccessfully a lot of the times is uh, to try to uh, take my son through a Bible story uh, before he goes to bed. And so we'll read this little children's uh, storybook Bible. And uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, the narrative is really exciting early on in the story. Uh, like, you know, when we're talking about creation, there's all these pictures of stars and, and the earth and, you know, the sun and moon. It is very exciting. And then, uh, you know, when I read from the story about Moses, I mean, it's when he's splitting the Red Sea, the, there's a picture of the sea split in half and a guy holding up his staff. It is dramatic. It is exciting. And then, uh, you know, we get to some other parts in the Bible where, uh, you know, there's uh, Daniel in the lion's den and there's these fierce looking lion with sharp teeth. And my son is like, oh my gosh, I need to use the bathroom. And, you know, it is just, it's exciting. Then we get to Jesus and there he is doing miracles, uh, opening the eyes of the blind and he is dying on the cross and he resurrects. It is so dramatic and it is so exciting. Uh, It's almost like a roller coaster. I mean, it is going at uh, breakneck speed. And then when we get to uh, the part about the church, uh, it almost seems to come to a screeching halt. You know, because, I mean, you know, when it gets to the picture of David and Goliath, you almost have to turn the Bible sideways, right? Because it shows how tall Goliath is. But when you get to the New Testament church, there are just pictures of these guys sitting in a circle. uh, And they're talking to each other. And they're singing songs. Uh, It almost looks like they're, they're taking a first century selfie. We're at this cool church event and program, and so the whole biblical narrative uh, seems to be going all like really fast, and it's really exciting, like a roller coaster. But when we get to the church, it almost feels like the roller coaster has come to an end. We're back in line, and we're just kind of waiting. All right, here we go. Uh, but then when it talks about Jesus uh, and Him coming back from the dead, it's almost as if we're back on the roller coaster. And so I remember reading this Bible with him, and we got through it a couple months ago, the whole thing. And I just remember thinking they couldn't have drawn any like better pictures about the church. Because it felt so uh, anticlimactic uh, when we see the whole uh, view of biblical survey and narrative. And, and I don't know um, if this kind of resonates with any of us this morning, uh, because we, we kind of know some of the basic Bible stories. We, I mean, if you've kind of been around church, you kind of have a general idea of how God is unfolding his story. But you ever have this feeling where when we come to the church, you're kind of like, is this it? Like, is this, is this it? Like, we kind of gather here once a week and kind of sing the same old songs and we listen to some guy stand on the stage and do his best for about 35 minutes and, and we kind of congregate, uh, right, in, in these little groups in homes and sometimes there's honest sharing, but a lot of the times it's just kind of ho-hum, ordinary. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way where the church, uh, under the backdrop of exciting biblical history, it almost feels a little ordinary and humdrum, like dare I say boring. 
you know, if you're kind of joining us for the first time, uh, you know, our, our church, we're kind of at the last stop of the series that we've been in called Radically Ordinary. This series, we're actually really trying to recover uh, kind of the heartbeat of God for Christian discipleship. I think we have a way of overcomplicating things. We have a way of kind of branding things to make things sound exciting. Uh, and it's helpful sometimes, but we can do that in a way where we kind of bypass even the, the simplistic heart of God. And so for the last two Sundays, we've seen how this is uh, kind of played out and the implications of that for our lives as Christians who are trying to follow Jesus, which is called discipleship, uh, the way that it plays out as us individuals. But this morning, I actually kind of want to invite us to a discussion corporately as a church, because some of us were saying, is this it? Like, is this what God has kind of saved us to? It just feels a little boring and there's got to be something a little bit more to God's church. And if this is uh, resonating with anybody, I actually want to invite you to uh, read with me uh, a famous passage in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. This is a a wonderful passage. And so if you'll look with me now, uh, I'll read chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? That's talking about Christ's death. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that's into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the reading of God's word. You know, the book of Ephesians, uh, it's it's really a um, uh, kind of 10,000 mile high elevation view of uh, our status in Jesus, both individually and corporately. And generally, scholars uh, will kind of divide the book of Ephesians in half. Uh, so that the first half, it's really a sky-high 10,000 view of the believer uh, in Jesus, our status in Jesus, both individually and corporately. And in the second half, uh, it's really the, uh, the zero in to show the practical implications of what that looks like, both for the individual and for the corporate church. But the passage that we just read, it's a famous passage. Uh, many pastors will refer to it. You've heard it read and preached before. Uh, it almost serves kind of as a a hinge passage where it almost connects uh, the first room of Ephesians, the first half of Ephesians, to the second half of Ephesians. 
And the basic idea is really that believers should live out our Christian discipleship in the local church by maintaining the unity of the church. That's really the message. And for us, when we hear that, we again might think, oh, you know, like I've heard that before. See, like, is this really it? I mean, is this what God saved us to, the local church? It seems so boring. Uh, But I wonder if there are things, profound things, maybe even spectacular things that we actually miss in this passage that really demonstrate how truly amazing God's church is. So for our purposes, we're actually going to excavate and uncover three things for our purposes, for those of you taking notes. So here's the first one. The first thing that we see here is the church experiences divine unity. The church experiences divine unity. Now, uh, if you've uh, been around certain church contexts, you might have a part time like agreeing with that in reality. In theory, we might agree with that, but we actually might have a hard time, right? Because, because some of us, uh, we actually experienced a church context where there was actually a great disunity, right? Some of us, we've seen church contexts where people are uh, fighting and gossiping and slandering each other, uh, where there's cliques that are exclusive very exclusive. Uh, some of us, we've been in contexts where we've seen church leaders actually fight amongst themselves, verbally, even physically in certain contexts. And, and that's why uh, often you, you'll hear a pastor or some church leader uh, say something like, you know, we need to pray for church unity. We need greater church unity as if it's something that, that we need to, to build and form together. Now, uh, there is a, a certain element of truth to that, but I wonder if Paul may have a very different understanding of church unity. Because I think as far as Paul is concerned in the chapter that we just read, the church already experiences a profound divine unity. There already exists in the church unity. We know this because of seven uniting principles that Paul has explained. Look, look with me in verse four. Here's what he says. Notice all the ones. There are seven of them. Verse four. There is one body, that's the one church, and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, which creates and gives birth to the church. Just as you recall to the one hope that belongs to your call, that's hope for life on the earth and beyond. Verse five. One Lord, that's our savior, Jesus, who grants us that hope. Uh, One faith, that's our our belief, our trust in the gospel, in Jesus. One baptism, which gives evidence of the reality that's happened in our hearts. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what Paul is saying is, uh, I know that you guys might not all know each other very well, but actually you already share in this profound divine unity in these seven existing, already existing uniting principles. So this has some implications for us, uh, how we see the church locally and universally. Allow me to explain. That means that locally when we congregate together like this, there is already existing a profound unity. Now, I know that there might be somebody over here who has no idea of the other person over here. And there might be someone hiding over there in the back, high up there. Uh, There might be someone over there that you have never, ever seen in your life. And to be honest, you're not really excited to meet them. And that's okay. But the amazing thing is that when we as individuals share in these seven uniting principles, there already exists a profound unity. 
Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there's no room for disagreements or, uh, you know, oh, it's not just feely unity. No, it's a legitimate, profound unity. This is not just true when the church gathers locally. This is true when the church is the global church, the universal church, all believers in all locations for all time. This is why, um, you, have you ever met another Christian in another time zone, uh, in, in another location? And have you ever had that conversation where um, you meet them and you're like, you're a Christian? You might be on the airplane. You're like, you're a, I'm a Christian. Have you noticed at that moment, you do not have a lot of uniting principles in terms of human interests. But there's a strange warmth, like, we know him. We, we're we're going to be hanging out for all eternity. Here we go. Isn't that weird? Where does that come from? Where, where's that from? Like, you can even meet someone annoying, right? And have, isn't it funny? Even underneath the feelings of annoyance, there's this more annoying warmth. Like, oh, Jesus loves you. I accept you too, right? And they're like, Say it louder. Can I hear you say that louder? You're like, I accept you in Jesus. Where does that come from? Where does that strange kind of weird warmth come from when the church gathers, whether we're corporately located in one context or even globally and universally? Maybe it's because we are forged together beyond mere human principles, human efforts. We're actually forged and united together by divine principles by divine effort. Like, did you notice the three members of the Trinity play a role in uniting the church? Did you see how of the seven uniting principles, three of them were the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That's pretty profound. Maybe that's, not, that's why it's not a coincidence that like, when we gather together, have, have you ever felt like, I just feel near to God when we gather as a church? Like you can read the same Bible at home, and it could be meaningful, but have you noticed there's just something different when you gather together? Why? Why is that? Well, maybe it's because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit play this divine, mysterious role that brings us together. Like, you know, when you go home, uh, you can turn off the lights. You can put up the music really loud, turn up the bass if that's what you're into. You can buy lighting and create a really nice ambiance but there's still something different than when we get, like I, I come in here during the week into this room by myself, right? Just to kind of prayer walk or whatever. It is not the same as when we gather together. Why? Because the church shares this divine, strange unity that has been forged already by God. This is why, um, you know, when I uh, talk to Christians and they'll say things like, you know, I haven't been feeling close to God lately. God feels distant from me. You know what I tell them? Here is my four years of seminary training, summed up in a nutshell. You ready? Here's what I tell them. It's profound. You're going to want to know this. You should go to church, dude. You should get plugged into the church, man. By the way, the words bro and dude, I actually had to take a class for that as well. Now, um, right? I mean, really, like, I did all that seminary, and when someone tells me I don't feel near to God, I just tell them, you should really get plugged into the church. You should go to church. And now, generally, I love this response, right? Hey, we don't go to church. We are the church. I'm really glad they're mutually exclusive. I'm really glad that, um, you know, I can simply be a dad. I don't have to be the dad that goes home to be a dad. 
Thank you for the ontological argument that somehow relieves us of our responsibilities and opportunities. No, no, sometimes I wonder if we Christians, we want to experience kind of the, the whole unifying presence of God without his church, even though that's what he's doing. So we actually want the presence of God simply on our terms while bypassing what God has designed for his church in terms of how he's saying, hey, I can meet you anywhere, but I've designed for the church to gather together with profound unity, profound unity. So that means that this week when you uh, go to cell group and the kids are going crazy and you feel like we shared nothing profound, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was not any less present in the unifying matter of that gathering. It is not just ordinary, ho-hum. The church experiences a divine unity. Now, here's where it gets tough, right? Because that idea, it, it sounds great. It even sounds very profound and spiritual and so forth. But the reality is it's very uncomfortable. It's nerve-wracking, actually. And this brings us to point two. Point two uh, is that the church exercises diversity for maturity. The church exercises diversity for maturity. Uh, To put it another way, uh, the church's function in terms of growing believers, in terms of helping you to grow and walk into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ, you you being conformed into the image of God, you looking more like Jesus in your life, his design for that is actually through the diversity of the church in terms of abilities, roles, and yes, even personalities. Now, that, that, that's counterintuitive to what we like. Because every single one of us, when we walk into a room, we do not like diversity as much as we think we like diversity. That's why when we walk into a room, what do we think? Is there, here's someone like me, right? Uh, some of us, we're introverts. I'm there, I'm in the club, right? We're like, oh, there has to be, is there someone who is just, doesn't want to talk, but can connect? You know, is there someone just like me at all? Or uh, is there just one person that'd be so much easier? Uh, that's our struggle. When we go to a corporate environments, we're just like, oh, I found somebody, Whew, one person. And so this seems counterintuitive to our growth in one sense, if it was primarily about our feelings. If it was about simply our feelings, it would not be productive. But if the diversity was for function. Now that's a different story. Because we kind of intuitively know that anything that functions properly, functions properly because of a great diversity of functioning parts. Like that, that's logical, we know that, right? Like even like a, a smartphone, there's so many different, we know that. Like if someone took a bunch of screens and super glued them together, that could look really cool and fancy, but there's some elementary kid that goes to our church who would be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Right? So anything that's, fun- and I realize that's a really bad illustration. I apologize for that. People were like, can you just go with the Bible? So let's go with the Bible, right? I love what Paul says about uh, the body, the human body. That's the metaphor of the church. I mean, it's, we, don't, we don't have to talk about this, but how does the body function? It functions properly when there's a, when there's a bunch of different parts that function properly. That's why in the text that we read, Paul uses words like uh, growth, joints, uh, in other parts, he'll use, even use things like ligaments, nourishing, growing together. I, I love what he says in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, when he says like, yeah, if the whole body were an eye, how could you smell? 
right? It's like he just put on his Captain Obvious hat, right? Like, how about this illustration, right? So we, we understand intuitively that for the body to function properly as God intended, it requires diversities. But what's the function of the church? What did God design for the church to do? Well, theologians and scholars say it's a threefold purpose. They pretty much agree on, on the threefold purpose. Purpose one, it's upward orientation in worship and outward orientation in terms of loving and reaching the world. But the third purpose is a sideward orientation in terms of helping other believers, our brothers and sisters in Jesus, to grow in maturity in Jesus. And for that purpose, the channel, the means, the processes through which God accomplishes that is through diversity in the church. That's why Paul, he talks about these various roles in the, in, in the verses that we read. He gave to the church what? Different roles like pastors, prophets, apostles, teachers, evangelists, shepherds. Why, why these different roles with these different giftings? Oh, it's so that they can do all the work of ministry, right? So everyone comes and gets blessed by the specialized few, right? No, it's so that the specialized few actually shares the ministry with the other specialized church so that it empowers and encourages so that every believer walks into the ministry that God has designed for them. This process, uh, Paul calls it the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Now, whenever we hear that passage, right, there's already like, there's always one of two responses. There's someone who's always serving like, yeah, go tell him, pastor. Or everyone else is like, I, I never like this passage because afterwards there's like a sign-up sheet and I have to sign up for something, right? We don't like this, right? Why? Because when we hear work of ministry, we go, me? Work of ministry? Like, I don't speak. I'm not a speaker, up to this point, when we, whenever I taught this text, I used to always say, oh yeah, you don't have to speak. You can do something else. But as I was studying for this text, and you can look with me in verse 15, I don't know if you noticed, but it says that as the church grows in love, how does it do that? Speaking the truth in love. Which means that we all speak the truth in love. That's how we encourage each other. So, I mean, some people speak the truth in love on the stage. But other people, they speak the truth and love off of the stage. So, so, so that if someone needs an encouragement, someone off the stage can speak that truth and love to somebody else. If someone needs correction, maybe the form of love is actually confrontation. Someone off the stage can also speak the truth and love. Which means that for us, when we gather on some Sundays, the best part of your Sunday will be someone who speaks on the stage. Other Sundays, the best part of Sunday will be what someone said to you off the stage. Or some Sundays, the best part of Sunday will be not no one speaking to you, but you speaking the truth and love to somebody else. Other Sundays, the best part of Sunday will not be any speaking, but silence. But in action, which speaks so much louder sometimes than words. Actions like the hospitality team who shows up early and they put together the refreshments out there for our enjoyment. Uh, like some of the deacons who arrive at 7, 7.30 in the morning, no one knows who they are and they will open the church doors, turn on the AC for us. Silence like 
the college student who shows up for service so they can help lead the children in worship. This is how God designed the church. This is how he designed us for us to grow. And I'm totally going to steal an illustration here uh, from uh, a certain pastor that I heard. But you know, like, when, when, you have a, when you have an itch on your left elbow, your brain recognizes that itch. It does not send some sort of crazy juice to heal that itch. Instead, it sends a signal like, uh, right fingers, brother, brother left elbow, needs some help. And so we go and scratch. Now, who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. So if there's someone in the church who is discouraged, how does Christ the head encourage that person? Brother or sister at Living Hope. Brother over there, discouraged. Sister over there. That sister over there needs some encouragement. And in this way, this ordinary humdrum of a church where ordinary people, ordinary pastors, ordinary servants, as we gather together and we speak the truth to one another in love, God does things. Now, what happens when we disengage? What happens when the church says, nah, I'm not really into that? Two things happen. One, muscle atrophy. Secondly, overall deterioration of the entire body. This is where sometimes when I hear uh, Christians say like, oh, I'm not growing, I'm not growing, I'm not growing. When I hear that too much, a part of me wonders how much of that is really the band and the speaker, but how much of that is really heart atrophy? Because we are not engaging in how the church grows in maturity. Because often as we speak the truth in love, as we serve, not only do others become nourished, we ourselves become nourished as well. This is God's design. The church exercises diversity for maturity. Um, but it's complicated. You know, some of us who have been in the church for a long time, uh, we remember signing up for a certain volunteer and uh, it just got weird and uncomfortable. Some of us, we helped out here and we didn't like it or we felt rejected and we felt like we weren't really good enough. We weren't as gifted as the person next to us. It's messy. It's messy. And this brings us to the third point that we see in this passage, which is this. The church ex- exemplifies the gospel and good news of Christianity. The church exemplifies the gospel and good news of Christianity. You know what is arguably the most profound thing about the local church? The thing that's arguably the most profound thing is that the church becomes the very beacon and hub through which the Christian gets to validate and prove and live out the very gospel they claim to believe. Because usually here's how it works, right? A Christian gets saved and they go, Jesus, thank you so much for saving me. I deserve death and, and punishment and wrath. But by your grace, you, you sent your son who lived the life I could not live and you poured out your wrath on him and now I, you've adopted me and I'm your, you're my father and I'm your child. Thank you so I want to live for you. At that moment, God picks us up and says, wonderful. And he drops us into the body of Christ. And he says, this is your family. Have at it. But usually here's, here's our response. You ready? Our response is, oh, I do not. That person is annoying. 
I do not like that person. Oh my gosh, like that person could literally not be any more different than me. What do I have anything to learn from a college student? That person is old, right? I don't, you know, they're not even with the times. They don't have Snapchat. Why would I ever listen to them? Oh, we had drama in the 10th grade. They're not going to join our church or cell group, are they? That's our response. And then we step away and say, God, I want to live radically for you. I want to fulfill the great commission which makes no sense to God. See, the local church, it should be this profound marinade of grace where we gather and we say, God has poured out his love for us through the Holy Spirit by his son. And therefore, we'll dispense grace to one another. Yes, it hurts me, but I will forgive you. Oh, this is painful and awkward, but I need to tell you the truth about something. Can I, can I just, just, we have a relationship. Can we have this conversation? You're creepy. No, no, no. Okay. Right? But I mean, really, a marinade of God's grace. See, this is Paul's huge exhortation in Ephesians 4. You know the passage that we read? It's really one, one uh, exhortation, one command, which is at the beginning where Paul says, I urge you, therefore, as the prisoner for the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called which is another way of saying, I want you to live out your gospel confession. If you say you've been saved by the gospel, live in a way that demonstrates the gospel. So there's symmetry of your confession and your life. Do it with humility, with gentleness, put up with one another, bear with each other in love. You don't have to create unity, just maintain it. Hold the fort, hold the line. Do not break the line. Sometimes I just wonder if, the most profound way that we can demonstrate Christ to the world is by loving one another. Like I absolutely agree that the church must take the gospel outward to the world. I absolutely believe that. But never to the neglect of the church applying the gospel to one another all the time. But but here's what we'll do, right? We'll say, ooh, we can have a 10-step strategy for reaching the world without loving ourselves, without loving each other. And it will bring all these people into the church and they'll say, oh, you know, like I thought like your whole gospel was about you know, reconciliation. Like your, your father reconciled you to himself or something like that by sending his son Jesus. But there's, there's no reconciliation here. There, there's no, so I, you know, I, it sounds good. Thank you for the idea of the gospel, but it clearly isn't true. Because if it was true, we'd see it. So we're never coming back, but thank you for the free donuts. And I just wonder if that's what we look like to the world sometimes. Maybe the most radical way that we can function in the church is to live out the very gospel we claim to believe to the person to the right and to the left of us. Now, I heard someone say something profoundly but love is so inefficient. Love is the most inefficient virtue. It's true, isn't it? Like if you didn't have to love anyone, wouldn't life be really fast? Taking my kids to the market takes a thousand years. (laughs) Holy cow. Um, But see, if our goal was efficiency, we could just be a machine of a church with no love. Love may be the most inefficient virtue but it is the most effective virtue in demonstrating our God. God is love. So in the long run, we gain true efficiency and effectiveness as a church when we love.
So the church exemplifies the gospel of Christianity. This is the church. Is this boring? Is this really humdrum? You're, you're, see, the, the church is where you get to experience divine unity as we exercise diversity for spiritual maturity, as we exemplify the gospel and the good news of Christianity. That is profound. So is the church sometimes boring? Yeah, it's sometimes boring according to the way that we see it, but this sometimes boring church of God is for the Christian profound blessing. It is God's gift to us. Praise God for the boring church. Thank God for the boring church. So what is your view of the church this morning? How do you view the church? You know, um, some of us, I, I, uh, I realize, we, we might be uh, asking this, right? We've been asking, oh, there's gotta be more to the church. There's gotta be something more. But, but maybe according to Ephesians, there's already more than you've ever bargained for. But he actually wants you to step into and appropriate and apply that which you already have. For others of us, it might be that uh, we kind of know all this stuff, right? We are like, yeah, I know, I know. But what's happened is we've lost all passion. And so maybe God's invitation for some of us is, I know you know it, but will you live it? For some of us here, uh, we're here, we're church shopping. And and that's fine. Uh, I think there's a right way to church shop. My one encouragement is please do not look for a perfect church because you will not find it. And if you do find it, please do not join because you will ruin it. (laughs) Lastly, um, some of us here, we're a little jaded, a little cynical. Actually, some of us, we, we've been deeply wounded by the church. Someone has hurt you a long time ago. And it's actually been the guiding principle for how you do church now. Like you told yourself that was in the past, but you're actually functioning today as if it happened yesterday. Uh, others of us, we've been deeply hurt by a leader, a small group leader, a spiritual leader. You know, can I, can, you know, I, I've been serving in the church form. I, I've, I've been in church my whole life. I've served formally about a decade. If I could just, I'm so sorry. You know, like the church is not perfect. No, no church is perfect. No church leader is perfect. And that's, that's not our, that's not our proclamation. Our proclamation is that though we are imperfect, we're just perfectly loved by a perfect savior who will perfectly lead us to glory. And so my invitation to some of us is, like, would you open up your heart to God's church again? Just like one more shot. Right now, some of us were saying, I will never let that happen to me again. But will you just open up your heart to God's church, to us? 
because it is God's design for discipleship. You know, um, I think my son's uh, storybook Bible, it could use some more exciting pictures about the church, to be honest. But the amazing thing is, um, it is not the boring part of the Bible. Actually, if you think about the timeline of biblical narrative, where we are today in history, the church is actually the culmination point, isn't it? Like the Old Testament, Jesus leads us to the church. So Moses would actually be like, the church is amazing. I had to wander for 40 years. The prophets would be like, are you, so the Holy Spirit resides in the believers, individually. And when you gather together, it's just like a Holy Spirit party. That is what? Jesus would be like, this is what I die for. This is what I wanted to create. This is what I'm building. And even the gates of hell will not prevail. And maybe uh, all that's hard for you to believe this morning. Maybe you'll leave still saying, well, the church is still sometimes boring. And that's fine. But wherever you are, maybe I can invite all of us to this one point, which is will you look at Jesus? Because he's beautiful. He is perfect. And even if we have problems with God's church, maybe we need to start by looking at him. I love this one quote by uh, the senior editor of uh, the Gospel Coalition, Brett McCracken. He wrote in this article called, What to Do If You're Chronically Frustrated at Church. And here's what he says. Sometimes we get so caught up in the nitpicky particularities of church that we forget what it is all about. We are not there to be comfortable nor to be affirmed in our preferences. We are there to worship God, to hear from him, to proclaim his glory and to rest in his goodness. Choosing this posture can go a long way in softening our edginess about church. Don't look inward in worship, rehashing bitterness in your heart. Don't look around either, finding fault in what your fellow churchgoers or leaders are doing. Look upward to God. Focus your gaze on him. That's why you're there. And so Living Hope, this morning, wherever you are and however you feel about God's church, let's look up at Jesus. Because the church may sometimes be boring, but Jesus, our Jesus, is always beautiful. Amen? Let's pray. As the band comes up, I I do want to invite you to pray to Christ, the head of the church. You know, only God knows how the sermon is resonating in your heart, how he's convicting you and encouraging you and challenging you. But maybe there's a place in your heart this morning where you're thinking, gosh, I, I, I do harbor bitterness or apathy towards the church. And you know, God understands. Like he knows the imperfections of the church better than all of us do. So could you ask him for help? And for others of us, maybe you're just chugging along. Will you thank God for the church? It it is the Christian's profound blessing. It is not ordinary. What we do in here, it is divine. And so will you thank him? So let's ask God for strength and thank him for his church. Let's do that right now as a corporate body.